Well, Peachtree, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Hopefully you are starting to begin to experience the Christmas anticipation and joy of what it means to be a part of this family and this season. It's so good to be with you and to celebrate the joy of this season together. One of the ways that we're doing that is through a series of messages that we're calling Best Supporting Actors. We're talking about some of the lesser known characters that are a part of the Christmas journey. Uh, we're talking about Zachariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna, and we're talking about how they each have these different attributes or disciplines that they go through of silence and availability and um, these great attributes are a part of what cultivate the humility of being able to be ready to receive Jesus Christ at this time of year. And so last week we, we talked about Zechariah and the journey of him being silent and how that silence began to be able to pull together the mystery of the holiness of being ready to receive the humility of the gift of the gospel in Jesus. This week, we're gonna be looking at a second character by the name of Elizabeth. And as we get ready to look at Elizabeth's story, I wanna tell you about the hardest class that I took in college. It was art history. It was this sweeping journey of art from the beginning all the way to contemporary. And uh, when we got to the period of the Renaissance, which seemed to last forever in art history, because it was such a seminal period in that incredible exploration, it seemed like there was one Annunciation painting after another. Here's one Annunciation painting by Fra Angelico, and then here's an accompanying one from Botticelli, and then here is one from a Spanish artist that was called the Greek or El Greco. And then here is another one here by Caravaggio with the contrast of the light and the dark. Caravaggio was one of my favorites. And then even a contemporary African-American artist uh, from recent American history in the 19th century by the name of Tanner. It seemed as I was going through art history that everybody had a portrayal of the Annunciation. The Annunciation is that famous moment in Luke chapter one where the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Now what you will never see in a painting is what happens right after the Annunciation where it says this. It says, at that time Mary got ready and hurried. In other words, this is Mary right after the Annunciation, picking up immediately and leaving. And why was she in such a hurry? Well, the reason that she was in such a hurry is because the angel Gabriel had told her that she was to be with child. And Mary would have known, as anybody would have in that culture in that day and age, that anybody who was said to have been with child, and yet they weren't married, would have been subject to the laws of adultery, which in that day and age was capital punishment. And so Mary is terrified and she begins to run. Where does she run to? That's what we see next in this verse. It says, to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. So in other words, Mary goes from one part of kind of an obscure portion of the world to an even more remote portion of it. And there she goes to the home of Zechariah and that of Elizabeth. 
What we know about Zachariah and Elizabeth from verse six in chapter one is that we know that they are righteous and blameless and completely devout in all of the Lord's commands. In other words, this would have been an intimidating thing because she's going to a very conservative home who would have taken the law of God very seriously as well as the laws of those land. We know that Mary has been tipped off that uh, hers is not the only miraculous birth, that in her old age, Elizabeth is going to be with child. And so Mary, with great fear, with great trepidation, and yet with a slim glimmer, glimmer of hope, she goes and she journeys quite quickly to the house of Elizabeth. And this is the rest of the story. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And so Mary is on the run. She's on the run for her life and she needs a safe place to go. And the angel Gabriel gives her a nudge and she goes to Elizabeth. And what does she receive when she gets to Elizabeth? She receives three things. She receives a warm welcome, a sincere blessing, and heartfelt joy. A warm welcome, sincere blessing, and heartfelt joy. First, let's talk about the warm welcome that she receives. One of the words that repeats over and over again in this passage is greeting, greeting, greeting. In three different occasions, three different times, the word repeats over and over again that there is this welcome, this warm embrace of receiving Mary. I love the story that Bob Goff tells of a time where he got to cross one item off of his bucket list. He always wanted to do, having lived in Southern California, what's known as the Transpac Sailing Race. It is a race that starts in Los Angeles and goes all the way to the harbor of Honolulu, Hawaii. This is a 2,600 mile sailing race at about seven miles an hour. That's about 16 days of a journey, assuming that you're going in the right direction. Just a few days before the race took place, they were in a vessel that was like this and the navigator decided that he could no longer make the journey. And so Bob Goff himself had to become the navigator and they wandered a little bit as they made their way through the journey from all the way from Los Angeles to Honolulu, Hawaii. And in the midst of that, this sounds like a glamorous trip, but it's a 24 hour slog with rain and, and winds and getting a little misguided and lost. And I mean, it's just a really grueling two week venture. And so when you finally get there, when you finally get to Hawaii and you get to your destination, one of the traditions that they have is that the same guy has been announcing every boat that comes into the harbor. He's been doing it for decades. And Bob Goff says when you get there, all of a sudden he names and announces your boat as if it's like the christening of some new aircraft carrier. And that he announces each person on the boat as if they're a head of state. And then no matter what the boat is, no matter how long it took them to get there, it doesn't matter if they get there at two o'clock in the morning or whether they get there at two o'clock in the afternoon. He always says the same thing. 
he says, whether they're first or last or somewhere in between, it's been a long journey, friends. Welcome home. Bob Goff said that the tears just welled up in all of the grown men's eyes as they embraced one another and they had made it to their destination. You and I have this incredible longing through the journey of life to hear that kind of greeting from God and from one another. We know that this journey is hard. We know that this journey is grueling. We know that we're going to get lost and we're going to venture back and forth at times. And we long for that great heavenly voice to say, welcome home. This is the first thing that Mary receives in the gift of hospitality from Elizabeth. The second thing that Mary receives from Elizabeth is that she receives a sincere blessing. Just as there were three different greetings, also that repeats that there are three different times that it's used the word to bless in order to describe the way that Elizabeth treats Mary as she comes to her home. And so Elizabeth provides that blessing over and over again. So it's not just a welcome, it's also a blessing. There was a show back in 2005, a BBC reality TV show that was called The Monastery. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but the premise of the show was that people could apply in order to be able to live in a monastery and experience it for 40 days. You didn't have to believe in God. You didn't have to believe in Jesus. You didn't have to believe any of the doctrines of the church, but you did have to be willing to conform to all of the different kind of practices and activities, you had to take the vows for that short period of time. And you can imagine the number of colorful characters that applied to be a part of this monastic experience that was gonna be broadcast on TV. There was one guy by the name of Tony. Tony actually worked as a producer in the pornography industry. And after 38 days of being in the monastery, his heart and his life started to change. And when he was just two days away from getting out, he was having his one-on-one -on -one time with Father Francis, the monk who was entrusted with his spiritual nurture. And when he gets to the end of the journey and he's talking about how difficult it's gonna to be to go back, Francis asks him if he would like a blessing. And I'd love for you to get a little sneak peek of what that blessing looks like. Want to finish? Yeah. We'll finish now. Before we do, I want to give you a blessing. <clears throat> I'm going to put my hands on your head. Oh, no. Just move that out of the way. <clears throat> Tony. May your soul calm, console, renew you. May the light of your soul guide you. May the light of your soul bless the work you do with the secret love and warmth of your heart. May the day never burden you. May dawn find you awake, alert, approaching your new day with dreams, possibilities and promises. May you go into the night blessed, sheltered and protected.
It's the weirdest experience I've ever had in my life. I don't know. I think, you know, I think I'm... It was a religious experience. Quite profoundly. Or I was sharing a religious experience with Francis. I think that's pretty clear. Tony struggles to put into words the nature and the feeling of this blessing. The experience that he's had over the course of the 40 days and the mystery of what it means to be in a Christian kind of fellowship. His whole life he's been striving, attaining, trying to earn, and yet this blessing is freely given. And he almost recoils at Francis saying, you're a good man. You're a good man. Francis is obviously not sanctioning what Tony does for a living. He's getting to his core of that image of God. You know, when Mary comes to Elizabeth, she doesn't just receive a warm welcome. She receives that sincere blessing, which we all long for. And what happens as a result of their joining together is thirdly, a heartfelt joy, the baby leaping in the womb over and over again. This is, hospitality is not just some sort of obligation, no matter how well it's done. It is an expression of the great joy that is available to each and every one of us. Remember the first time that I went to Africa, we were coming from Southern California and it was like 22 hours of flying time. And then it was about five hours in the car. And then we were coming to this small remote village in the area that's known as the Agongo. Agongo is a term in that language that just means rocks stacked on top of rocks. It is so remote that the only way you can describe this area is as if God kind of dropped a bunch of rocks and boulders in an area. And it's just kind of looks like that they dropped from the sky. And so in this area, we have been doing a, a work of trying to help to build up this village and particularly to build up their school and an opportunity for them to learn and to grow and to change their lives through Christian education. When we got about a mile out, the villagers and the children in particular did not wait for us to get there. They came to our cars and they came and they made this singing procession. I wanna show you this picture of what it was like for them to move in front of us. And we moved at a slow pace, hearing the chants and the cries and the cheers and the songs of joy that we had finally arrived. I wept as I experienced what it was like to see that kind of heartfelt joy the kind of thing that we often misplace only in reserve for kind of sporting events, they had shared in the gift for another group of people. I love how David Brooks, who is the author of the book, The Road, The Character, in the last couple of lines of his book, describes it in this way. Joy is the byproduct experienced by people who are aiming for something else. There's joy in a life filled with interdependence with others and a life that's filled with gratitude, reverence, and admiration. There's joy in freely chosen obedience to people and ideas and commitments greater than oneself. 
There's joy in that feeling of acceptance, the knowledge that though you don't deserve their love, others do love you. They have admitted you into their lives. There's a kind of joy we feel in doing good, which makes all other joys seem paltry and easy to forsake. Joy is not produced because others praise you. Joy emanates unbidden and unforced. Joy comes as a gift when you least expect it. At those fleeting moments, you know why you were put on this earth and what truth you serve. You may not feel giddy at those moments and you may not hear the orchestra's delirious swell or see flashes of crimson and gold, but you will feel satisfaction, a silence, a peace, or a hush. Those moments are the blessings and signs of a beautiful life. There's joy, there's joy, there's joy. What was the result of all three of these things in this beautiful encounter between Mary and the hospitality of Elizabeth? I love this one verse, it speaks volumes. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for how long? About three months. 90 days. Elizabeth goes deep. You know, it might feel strange to be preaching a sermon about hospitality in a time where we're going through a pandemic where you can't throw parties and it's not the time to celebrate in large gatherings. I, it's not the kind of hospitality I'm talking about. The kind of hospitality that Elizabeth offered to Mary was to one person, and it was so deep. I love how Andy Stanley puts it. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And one of the ways that God cultivates kind of a humility within us is when we're willing to go deep in that way, a deep and abiding hospitality. There's a true story of a guy by the name of Eusebius Hieronymus, who was born in 347 AD, born somewhere probably along, we don't exactly know, the Croatian coastline. He grew up in kind of a, kind of a, a town that didn't have a lot of educational possibilities. And even though his parents were well off for that area, they knew they could not provide for him the education of what his mind could actually perform. And so at the age of 12, his parents sent Eusebius over to Rome for him to be able to be schooled in one of the great cities of that day and age. He had a real proclivity for languages. And at the same time, he also dove into the life and the cosmopolitan nature of Rome because he had never seen anything like that before. In every way, he was living it up and was way over the edge of what he should be doing. He not only filled his mind, he kind of deteriorated his soul, and eventually his soul caught up with him. And the guilt and the despair of the life that he was living began to cause this great stirring within him. Eusebius eventually decided to give his life to Christ. He converted, he got baptized. He decided to go further his education and to experience a different part of the world. And so he moved over to Turkey to what was known as Antioch at the time. For three years, he spent in the wilderness trying to bear his life before Almighty God. 
Eventually, he came back to Rome. His incredible mental faculties were something that the Pope really wanted to use. And so the Pope gave Eusebius a charge. He said, I want you to translate the Bible into the vernacular of that day, which was Latin, from the original Greek of the New Testament and the Hebrew of the Old Testament. Well, Eusebius was quite fluid in Greek, and, and so he ended up in a residence of a woman by the name of Marcella. Marcella was a widow, and Marcella was a woman who would teach Bible studies in that time. She not only provided hospitality to Eusebius while he was translating the New Testament, she also became his primary discussion partner, sparring partner. She would disagree and she would help him to refine that translation for what it was going to be. After about three years and when he had mostly finished the New Testament, the Pope died and Eusebius found himself on the outs with the incoming Pope who was threatened by Eusebius's friendship with the previous Pope. And so Eusebius knew that he had to get out of town and so he fled to a place in, that you and I know as Bethlehem. And he went there because he knew that his Hebrew was not good enough for him to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Latin. There was a woman there by the name of Paula who was also a widow. She had had four kids, had married when she was 16, and her husband had died not too long after all the children were born. She was on a Holy Land pilgrimage and was in Bethlehem and decided to dedicate the rest of her life to providing a convent, a place for people to be able to experience a life in God for women. She, in her wealth, commissioned and provided and became the patron for Eusebius to stay in Bethlehem. For 34 years, she provided for him for him to be able to finish his lifelong quest and task and mission. I want to show you what Eusebius's office was. It's this cave. This cave is located right next door to the cave where it was celebrated and believed where Jesus was born. For three decades, Paula provided the place and the space for Eusebius, or as you might know him, or I might know him, as St. Jerome, to be able to translate God's word. One of the greatest gifts that we have ever been given in the church to be able to cherish God's word was the lifelong scholarship of Jerome. And it never would have been possible without two women, Marcella in Rome and Paula in Bethlehem. I didn't know this story at all. And when we went to the Holy Land and we went down into the cave that was adjacent to the cave of the Nativity and I heard their story, my eyes welled up with tears of joy for the hospitality of two women who had given so much for God's word to be available to you and to me. Never underestimate the power of humble hospitality, a warm welcome, 
a sincere blessing and heartfelt joy. When someone comes to you, will they feel these three things? Do they experience them? Do you give them in the same way that Elizabeth gave these gifts to Mary? In the same way that Marcella and Paula gave them to Jerome? You and I are God's people who are called to share this kind of hospitality even in the midst of the pandemic. And so our challenge today is to see hospitality in a whole new light and to recognize that at Christmas, it's not just the announcement of the good news. It's also what happens next, that in lives that are on the run and scared, that we provide those places where people can experience the deep, deep love of Almighty God. And so let's pray. Thank you, God, for the incredible challenge and adventure that it is to live a life of faith. And most of all, oh God, how that is embodied and lived out in the gift of hospitality. Lord, we often think of hospitality just in terms of parties and events. And in reality, it's so much deeper than that. And so I pray, God, that you will encourage each and every one of us to think about hospitality during this season, that as Elizabeth provided for Mary, that we might think of providing that kind of deep love for others. Help us to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And so God, as we now prepare to come to your table, we realize that you provide this kind of welcome, this kind of blessing, and this kind of joy to each and every one of us. As so as we prepare to celebrate your feast, may we also receive your embrace. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.